The HD Insights Podcast is brought to you by the Huntington Study Group. The Huntington Study Group is a nonprofit research organization dedicated to conducting clinical research in HD and providing critical training on HD to healthcare professionals. Funding for this podcast is made possible through the generous support of listeners like you and sponsorship grants from organizations like Genentech, Teva Pharmaceuticals, Neurocrine Biosciences, Vasinex, and Wave Life Sciences. Welcome to another episode of the HD Insights Podcast. I'm Kevin Gregory, Director of Education, Communications, and Outreach with the Huntington Study Group. And in this episode, we had the privilege of chatting with Dr. Martha Nance. Dr. Nance is a longtime member of the Huntington Study Group. She's a neurologist and geneticist at the Hennepin County Medical Center and Struthersons Parkinson Center. Um, she also uh, is director of the HDSA Center of Excellence in Minneapolis. And we thought, based on some feedback, um, questions about uh, family planning, uh, Huntington's disease in youth, we thought it would be a great opportunity to talk with Dr. Nance about her experiences. And while this episode has been um, our longest uh, podcast of the series so far, I think you're really going to enjoy it. So uh, without any further ado, let's get to that episode now. Here is our interview with Dr. Martha Nance. Well, Dr. Nance, thank you for joining us today on the HD Insights Podcast. Well, it is absolutely my pleasure to, to chat. Well, I, I think ultimately it's going to be it's going to be certainly my pleasure, and I, I think the uh, the listening audience's pleasure as well. Um, so let's let's start out before we dive into some of the topics that I know are of of keen interest to folks. I, I want to talk with you about you know your background in Huntington's disease and and how you got into this. Um, what was what prompted you to pursue a career in in neurology and genetics, and then what ultimately led you into the HD field? Well, you know, there's there's things that you plan and things that you don't plan, uh, and things that just have to do with how you were brought up. So, I uh, my father is actually a geneticist, um, and I had what I refer to as kind of a warped childhood. Uh, the only summer job I ever had uh, when I was about 14 and beyond was uh, working in a cytogenetics lab, looking at chromosomes under the microscope. Um, and so I sort of grew up with an interest in um, genetics. Uh, but then, you know, when I went to college and went to medical school, I found that I was actually also interested in, in the brain and neurology. And um, I was going through training, I finished college in 1980 and medical school in 1984, and believe it or not, um, this was just about the time that things like um, CAT scans and MRI scans were, uh, started to be done. So the ability to actually look at the brain, um, which was something we, we, we really couldn't do before in a living person, that was just happening. Uh, and it was also really a time of um, an explosion of uh, genetic techniques in the laboratory. Uh, and I think I must have just sort of known that uh, what would really interest me most was the interface between those two things, um, between neurology and genetics. So I uh, dutifully did my uh, neurology residency uh, out here in Minnesota. Um, and then I decided to do a fellowship in clinical genetics. So I actually could be a you know, a card-carrying, fully trained geneticist. Um, so those are all the things that you sort of plan. Um, what I didn't plan and just happened to be here in Minnesota uh, was there already was a uh, Huntington's disease clinic at Hennepin County Medical Center that was started in the late 1970s. Um, and while I was a resident and then as a fellow, I would come to the Huntington's disease clinic um, and, you know, found it uh, fascinating, uh, difficult, um, but really fascinating. Um, and when I finished my training, uh, the person who had run that clinic left for a different job. And so there I was, a newly minted 
geneticist neurologist um, in a Huntington's disease clinic that needed somebody to run it. Um, so that was a pretty easy choice. Um, and I've never looked back since. Uh, it's, you know, it, um, it continues to be a difficult disease, but, but one that, you know, I, I think is fascinating. Um, I think the um, scientific progress that we're making has been slow um, for many years, but I think it's very exciting now to be doing trials of, of therapies to actually you know, turn off the, the abnormal gene. Um, so it's, um, you know, so Huntington's disease has been good to me, and I, I think that our clinic has made a huge difference in the lives of our patients, even though I have yet to make Huntington's disease go away. What what were those the early days like there? So you said you know that that clinic for Huntington's patients was started in kind of the the mid to late seventies, and that was mm -hmm. you know that was kind of well before some of the more recent discoveries in in Venezuela mm -hmm. and more of the identification of the gene. What was what was care and treatment like back then compared to what you've seen it evolve into now? Well, one of the things that actually kind of got me hooked, um, the Huntington's gene was localized in 1983, uh, which basically means if you're looking for the needle in the haystack, that they actually figure out which haystack to look in for the needle. Um, it took another 10 years until 1993 before the gene was actually identified. Um, but one of the things that we did very early on, even before the gene was identified, um, was to offer um, predictive genetic testing um, using markers that were known to be close to the gene. Um, and, uh, so we actually were involved in genetic testing of Huntington's disease back in the, I think it was probably the late 80s, um, bef before the gene was actually identified. Um, and so I feel like I was kind of on the ground floor. It was one of the first programs in the country that was actually offering this as a clinical service. Um, so that was kind of neat. Um, uh, you know, there really has been an explosion of medications to use to treat symptoms over the last 25 years. Um, there's sort of, one could think of it as just being variations on the theme. So, I mean, there have been antidepressants around for a long time, but there are boy, you know, 20 different antidepressants to choose from. And although there have been medications to treat things like um, hallucinations or um, irritability or explosive behavior, we, we have a, an you know, ever-growing number of medications um, to choose from now. And so you can kind of fine-tune much better now what medication you might use given what side effect you either want or don't want. So for instance, some medications might people make a person sleepy. That would actually be a good thing if part of the trouble is that the person isn't able to sleep. Other medications might be more, um, more uh, tend to sort of perk a person up, which might be more useful if somebody is, is kind of a, a groggy, sluggish, um, uh, or, or has a lot of apathy. So the treatments are, are um, more, uh, we have more choices, and obviously the, we participated in the research study that brought tetrabenazine to the market, and, and my patients were just thrilled, you know, to, to be in that study. And then <clears throat> three years later, to be able to say the reason this drug is on the market is because I participated in the study. So that was kind of fun. Um, the... Um, we have always had at, at my center a multidisciplinary team. Um, again, this predated me, but it is a wonderful thing to, and makes it makes my care so much easier when I have a physical therapist, occupational therapist, speech therapist, dietitian, psychologist, neuropsychologist, genetic counselor, social worker. Um, you know all these different people to help look at the uh, different aspects uh, of Huntington's disease. And so we've actually been doing that for for decades. Um, and it's made my job easier and actually more interesting. Well, and that's a good um, that's a good touch point there that I wanted to, to chat with you about in some more detail. I, I know that multidisciplinary management is, is certainly one of your passions. Um, 
But in general, you know, people and even some clinicians maybe that aren't familiar or experienced with Huntington's disease may not really recognize the importance of that approach. Um, can you explain for, for listeners the, the value of having a care team across multiple types of disciplines that you mentioned, particularly for HD patients? I would love to talk about that. Um, <laughs> so, you know, what what doctors tend to do is hand out pills, and they're, you know, I mean, the thing that the physician has power over that no one else can do is prescribing medications. And <clears throat> and certainly medications can be helpful for people with Huntington's disease. But um, I always say that sickness or even death in Huntington's disease is often related to trouble swallowing. So people develop, the doctor word for trouble swallowing is dysphagia. Um, and when you have dysphagia, sometimes the food goes down the wrong tube and then you get pneumonia. Or sometimes some people just sort of seem to not really want to eat anymore. I think some people may be actually sort of scared of eating. Uh, and if you don't eat as much, then you lose weight. Um, and, uh, and, and then you could even have a, an abrupt episode of choking that could lead to, to death if you have a you know, piece of steak that gets uh, lodged in the throat or, or something like that. So because um, morbidity and mortality in Huntington's disease are related to dysphagia, don't you think that maybe you should have a speech pathologist involved even very early on to evaluate the swallowing, to see if there are troubles, to make sure there aren't any um, additional unrelated problems. People in their 40s or 50s can also have throat problems. Um, you know, a, a stricture in the throat or a little pouch off the throat. So make sure you're optimizing um, everything about the, the person's current ability to swallow. Um, do a little teaching early on about the kinds of changes that occur in Huntington's disease. And then um, work with the patient intermittently throughout the course of the disease as things change. Um, to help the person maybe change the textures of the foods that they eat or maybe change the, um, the approach to eating. Um, for instance, we're all used to thinking of eating as being a very social uh, activity, um, but it, for some patients it may be a bad idea to um, try and eat and talk at the same time. So some of our patients are actually better off um, eating in a very quiet uh, situation, and and if you're going to do your talking, do that before or after dinner, but not in the middle of dinner, because you're more likely to inhale and swallow at the same time, which could be bad. And then we tag team uh, at our center. Um, I've always been very proud of the fact we have a, a dietitian um, also on our team as really an integral part. <clears throat> and the dietitian and the speech pathologist often go in together to see the patient, and um, the speech pathologist does what they call a bedside swallow or a clinical swallow evaluation just in the exam room and talks about textures of foods and so on that might be better or worse for a person. The dietitian can then translate that into what food, you know, what specific food should you not be eating uh, or should you try to avoid um, or what specific kinds of foods would be safer. And so they, they really work very closely together to, um, to really educate people early on about the, the swallow changes that can occur. Um, many of our patients also lose weight, um, uh, and whether it's due to having too much chorea or whether it's due to financial problems that they can't buy food or whether they need somebody to prepare food for them that isn't there, um, the dietitian will also identify um, uh, you know, somebody's losing weight, um, what's, what's really going on? Um, how much are you eating? How many calories do you need? Uh, and can recommend, um, uh, you know, resources to, uh, or strategies to improve the calorie intake. So we get those folks involved very early um, with, with essentially all of our patients. The social worker obviously is a critical person as um, things change and care needs uh, increase. One of the challenges with Huntington's um, because of the young onset age is that uh, quite often when the person with Huntington's disease is no longer able to work, there are still children at home, the spouse is working two jobs now because the person with Huntington's can't work, and then the person with Huntington's is home alone all day. 
or the kids come home early from school to take care of their father. Um, and oh boy, you know, aren't there some um, strategies or resources in the community to to um, you know brighten up the life uh, or make things easier for the family? Or if people have uh, need to be placed outside the home at some point, it just isn't working at home. How do you organize that? So the social worker can is obviously a integral part of the team from beginning to end, and so on. The physical therapist, occupational therapist, OT talks about kind of safety in the home um, and how you get activities of daily living accomplished. Physical therapy typically talks about the mechanics of walking and balance and falling and exercises that can help to maintain function as long as possible. Psychologists uh, can be useful not only for the patient but for the other people in the family. How do you adapt to to having this this progressive uh, neurodegenerative disease at at your age? How does your how about your marital relationship? How about relationships in the family? Um, so the psychologist can be very uh, important. The neuropsychologist helps us with um, assessing uh, cognition, um, both in terms of helping the patient and family to understand if there are problems that maybe one or another doesn't realize or doesn't acknowledge. Um, formal cognitive testing can also be very helpful in supporting a um, disability claim. Um, so and so on. I, I can go on for hours <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, about each of these, uh, the roles of each of these people. But it's it, it makes my life much easier to have all these people be part of my team, and um, and I think it's better for the patient. I, I often I had a slide I made once of a, of the sort of um, HD molecule, uh, which had the patient in the middle, surrounded by a kind of a shell of their immediate family. And that was also surrounded by a, a, a you know, slightly more distant shell of the um, uh, more distant family members, you know, aunts or cousins or you know, people that might help out. And then the the medical care team is is another shell uh, that sort of helps to support the the patient. Um, and then finally, there's you know, sort of training up people in the community so that they understand a little bit more about Huntington's disease, so you don't feel quite so uh, lost or alone when you go to the grocery store or go to a movie um, uh, when you have Huntington's disease. So, so we really try to um, build this strong um, base of support um, that really surrounds the person with Huntington's disease. Well, and as I understand it from things I've you know uh, learned over time here or heard about you, your approach to patient care also gets you out and about in the community a lot, um, particularly in terms of you know, not just newer patients or at early stages of diagnosis, but people that are in long-term care facilities or, or hospice. Yeah. Can, can you talk a little bit about it? Like, tell, give us a, a day or a week in the life um, for Dr. Nance in terms of getting <laughs> out of the clinic into the community with patients. Yeah. Well, so... Um, so one of my mantras has always been that, um, well, I, there, there are several of them, um, but um, uh, there's never nothing you can do for somebody with Huntington's disease. You can flip that around and say there's always something you can do for somebody with Huntington's disease, um, up to and including on the day they die. Um, uh, I think doctors sometimes take a uh, kind of a narrow view of what doctors do. Uh, we have dominion over the prescription pad, and so we see patients and we refill their medications, and we're very sorry to hear that things are worse, but here's your refill, and we'll see you next year. Um, and and I think quite often um, um, the patient and the neurologist lose touch with each other um, quite often in the late stages of the disease. Um, why is that? Well, the neurologist would say, well, the patient moves to the nursing home and becomes immobile, and then they quit coming back to clinic. Um, and I think that's probably true. Um, so what you might have to do then instead is go to where the patient is. Um, and I think, unfortunately for the doctor, it's not very efficient if you have 
20 patients and they're in 20 different assisted living facilities or long-term care facilities, it's, it's very inefficient for the doctor to drive to 20 different places. Um, uh, but um, I have, again, this marvelous resource here in, in Minneapolis of a long-term care facility that has a 32-bed um, unit for people with Huntington's disease. And it's actually much more efficient for me to go to the nursing home and see 10 people in an afternoon than for those 10 people to, you know, get loaded up into vans and come to see me in the clinic. Um, so I do um, physically go to the to the nursing home and, and see patients. And then I can also support the staff at the nursing home. Um, they, I, I think, um, if you think about the work that direct care staff do for people living in nursing homes, um, it, it's a lot of work and I think maybe not, we don't give enough thanks to the people that do that kind of work. Um, and for my folks on the HD unit to understand how, what a unique service they're providing, you know, that there aren't that many nursing homes for people with Huntington's disease. and um, and. Uh, a few years ago, there was a aide that worked at the nursing home whose side gig was she liked to um, uh, do nails. And she one day decided to bring her her uh, nail polishing kit uh, into the into the nursing home with her, and she did everybody's nails. And that's kind of been a thing ever since then that um, that my patients get their nails done. And it really is a remarkable thing. I can tell you that ladies in the late stage of Huntington's disease um, are happier when they have their nails done than if they don't. Um, so it's it's that kind of little thing that um, I don't do these things myself, but I think that we've created a uh, an environment where where people are able to go that one step further. We're not just doing custodial care of some guy with late stage Huntington's disease. We're, we're going to make sure that that person actually looks good and feels good. Um, so so that's one of the things I do is go out to the, the um, long-term care f um, facility and actually see the patients there and, and, and I think support the staff who are providing the care. We also um, have some amazing families uh, in Minnesota, at least three different families who have, and actually there's four or five now that we sort of groomed o over the years, um, of group homes um, that provide care for people with Huntington's disease in a, in a you know, a home environment. So you, so you have a house that has four or five bedrooms and you have four or five people with Huntington's disease living in, in that you know, truly a, a home-like environment. So again, sort of providing support for the the um, folks who created these um, group homes and and kind of empowering them, helping them to understand that they they are also doing something unique and special, and that uh, you do that for ten years, and they too are experts. Um, so, um, so those are some of the, and, and along the way, you know, we don't, we try not to abandon our patients in the late stage of their disease. Um, right. We try to maintain a, a connection with them, you know, up, up, up to and through, you know, up, up including the day they die. You're better off dying with somebody holding your hand than you would be dying alone. Absolutely. You know, I, I mean, there may not be a pill to give you at that point, but you know, how about a hug? Absolutely. The you mentioned the um, you know the facilities and the families that uh, have put together um, locations and, and places for Huntington's patients. You know, uh, long-term care facilities that focuses on in on that and these these group homes. That's been one of the challenges in this field is is finding you know that type of setting in states across the country that are are willing to take in uh, HD patients just because of the challenges. What are uh, you know just from your experience in interacting with with these groups and these organizations, 
what are the types of things you would recommend to people in other areas of the country looking to start up these types of programs? What were the, the challenges or, or what are the, you know, the recommendations you would, you would suggest to try and make these things uh, a success and a, a part of the community for future care? Yeah, so so I would I would deflect that to the people at the facilities who are the real experts. I mean, these things uh, came to be, you know, quite honestly, without me doing anything. Um, now, one could argue, would there be an HD nursing home if there wasn't an HD clinic? Probably not. Um, would um, you know? Would would people have developed HD? Would a family have had the idea or the courage to develop an HD group home if their own loved one with Huntington's disease wasn't receiving adequate care? Probably not. But um, but as to the the details of you know getting through the the legal stuff and how do you make it work financially and um, how do you how do you keep it going on an ongoing basis? Um, I, I just think there should be, I mean, you could probably create a task force or working group or whatever you want to call it about late-stage care, and it shouldn't be me. It should be these other the folks that run these um, programs that are in that group. Um, and there, there are going to be different challenges state by state, um, you know, both in terms of regulations and uh, financial support available for, for, for late-stage care. Um, but there's also this, um, I think, great misunderstanding um, that I, I think it probably should be me the, or us, the researchers, um, that should try to fix. I, I think there are many care facilities that are sort of allergic to the word Huntington's disease. You just say, I have a patient with Huntington's disease, and they hang the phone up. Um, and that, I think, is based on a um, you know, mid 20th century misunderstanding of what Huntington's disease is or requires in terms of care. Not not everybody with Huntington's disease. I, I think what they're worried about at, at at care facilities is that the patients are going to have behavior problems. And yes, there are occasional patients with Huntington's disease for whom uh, behavioral management in the late stages is challenging, but there's an awful lot of people with Huntington's disease um, in the mid to late stages of the disease who don't have challenging behavior to manage. Uh, and by the way, with the explosion of people with Alzheimer's disease, people with Alzheimer's disease have challenging behaviors to manage too. So, so first of all, there should be more um, knowledge just sort of in general about how to manage patients with dementia perhaps than there used to be. And number two, not everybody with Huntington's disease has challenging behaviors. Um, yeah, but I, I think we as a HD research community or a professional community could probably do more to try to um, fix these mix misunderstandings um, uh, in the long-term care community. We'll return to the interview on the HD Insights podcast in a moment. We hope that you're enjoying this episode. As a nonprofit organization, the Huntington Study Group relies on the generous support from the community and listeners like you to continue bringing you in-depth content on HD, like this podcast series. If you like what you're hearing and are interested in supporting HD Insights through a grant or donation, please contact us through our email address, info at hsglimited.org, or by calling toll-free at 1-800-487-7671. We greatly appreciate your support. And now, back to our episode. I'd like to um, talk with you, Dr. Nance, about you know, the other uh, end of the spectrum now, and that's youth and, and the impact of HD on youth. Um, you know, starting with, with juvenile onset HD, um, there, you know, some people might just naturally assume that, that the juvenile onset version is, is the same as adult onset. It's just that it happens sooner or, or in kids, but that's, that's not 
entirely accurate. What are the main differences, really, between the, the juvenile onset symptoms and, and those you would find in an adult? Yeah, so the symptoms, um, uh, there's some overlap, but they certainly can be different and sometimes quite different. I think the the closer to age 21, uh, a child is when they sort of develop symptoms of Huntington's, the more likely it is to kind of look closer to adult onset uh, HD. The ones who where it really looks quite different from adult HD are the younger children. Um, so in a younger child, there's quite likely to be little or no chorea. Um, none of those wiggly extra movements. There's actually much more likely to be rigidity, stiffness. Um, truncal stiffness, which if you have stiffness of the midline, the trunk, then these are often kids who are toe walkers. Um, they're, they're, they're sort of up on their toes because their legs and trunk are stiff. They may have, um, again, another midline structure is your throat. Um, so children may have sort of stiffness in a sense of the throat. They'll have drooling uh, or trouble with articulation. Um, so the motor symptoms look very different than than the um, uh, motor symptoms in an adult. The, the other thing is sort of how it how you become aware of it is a little bit different. In an adult, adults already know how to ride a bike and drive a car, um, but they lose those skills. Um, what you might see in a in a very young child, a five-year-old or a two-year-old or an eight-year-old, is that they they can't quite ever learn how to um, ride a bike or hit a baseball, or you know, so they may at some point fail to acquire um, skills or never really master certain skills that you should master by uh, by a certain age. Um, so, so there may be sort of a um, uh, slowness, or a, or you, you hit a um, plateau and you you fail to acquire further motor skills. Um, second thing is, um, uh, although you and I are um, probably losing brain cells a few a day, um, me more quickly than you, because um, I'm older, um, you don't really notice it. Um, uh, we're not having, you and I aren't really having a quiz every week, um, but children are um, when they're in school. Uh, you know, they have tests every week and they have to learn a new subject every month or every semester. Um, and so it's, it's likely to be much more obvious kind of more quickly if a child is um, failing to sort of gain uh, intellectual skills or if a kid used to be getting you know B's in school and now they're now they're just not performing very well they're not learning very well um, that that it sort of becomes obvious because they're tested all the time um, so cognitive changes certainly can occur but it's going to present as um, poor performance in school or a declining performance in school compared to however it was you used to do um, and then the third thing is for some children, and this is where doctors and parents kind of struggle uh, with each other, for some children the most prominent early feature is, is behavioral. In my experience, when HD prevent, presents in a child with bad behavior, it is not subtle bad behavior. It's really bad, bad behavior. Um, I mean, it's an eight-year-old strangling the two-year-old with a with a light cord, um, or it's you know major uh, drug abuse at age 12, or it's burning down the school building. It's not sort of being sassy to your mother when you're a teenager. Um, but of course, every parent um, of a preteen or teenager whose spouse has Huntington's disease. You know, and the and the kid um, gets a lousy grade on a test, or um, mouths off to mother, or, or won't do what they tell him to do. You know, the or or heaven forbid has sort of a tantrum and and throws something, or is smoking behind the school building. Every mother <clears throat> is going to sort of be in a panic that that child is starting to develop uh, the bad behavior that might be a symptom of HD, and that's where it's. It's kind of a challenge. I think um, 
doctors, neurologists, pediatricians are really hesitant to leap to a diagnosis of Huntington's disease um, just based on sort of mild um, disruptive behavior. Anybody who's ever had a teenager has experienced disruptive <laughs> behavior. Oh, yeah. Um, so we, we, we struggle with that, and the, but the, and the parents know darn well that this isn't normal or this isn't the way the kid used to be, and, and the doctors are kind of sometimes slow to, uh, slow to get there. We sort of look for something we can um, kind of sink our teeth into a little bit more firmly, like a change in academic performance at school or a change in motor performance or some kind of finding on a neurologic exam. And then the last thing that's much more common in kids than adults would be seizures. And um, uh, seizures are, are, you know, epileptic seizures are not present in all children with HD, but they're not unexpected. Um, and they really range from being kind of a minimal ho-hum, it's not a big deal sort of thing, to being a, a pretty dramatic uh, problem that's difficult to manage. Um, so those, those, so the seizures are different. People argue, does juvenile HD progress more quickly than adult onset HD? Maybe, um, you know, if you get symptoms when you're, my, my little guy who had symptoms start when he was two, lived to be 18. So that's actually a 16-year course. So it, it seemed like it went more quickly, but actually if you added up the total number of years, it was 16, which isn't, you know, isn't that unusual for a total course of, of HD. So I, I'm not sure that it really progresses more quickly. There are some papers saying that it does, and, um, but, but I, I think the, the, um, the difference between a normal child who's acquiring skills and gaining strength and energy and knowledge and beauty and and, and a kid with Huntington's who's who is um, declining, I think you see a bigger, more rapid um, uh, disparity between the normal kid and the person with Huntington's than maybe an adult who's, you know, most adults are sort of static in their performance during your middle-aged years, and, and you compare that to somebody who's got a decline in HD. So, so maybe the differences between normal kids and kids with HD are more prominent, but I'm not sure that the course is really that much quicker. The, the other area of, of youth and impact with Huntington's disease, and I think this kind of ties into what you spoke about earlier, having this larger care team to, to help, is the impact on an you know unaffected sibling of someone with juvenile onset or the child of, of a parent with HD. What what types of things have you seen, um, or or are you on the lookout for in terms of you know those those younger family members that are are part of an HD family, the the risks or or the you know the the things that you're looking to make sure that they're doing all right as well. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> Huntington's is a um, a family disease uh, in every meaning of the word. So it's a um, dominantly inherited genetic disease. So you know if you've got it, then your children have a 50/50 chance each child um, of getting it. But it's also a family disease. You, you cannot go through a whole course with Huntington's disease by yourself. Uh, you just cannot go through this disease from beginning to end without somebody else um, being involved in your support. Um, and and when the going gets tough, who, who we all lean on in the end is our families. And so it really becomes a family disease uh, in in that way as well. Um, and um, it absolutely impacts on uh, you know, a, a a parent with Huntington's disease um, who has children at home um, are absolutely impacted by the disease. They can't not be. Um, uh, the, the first challenge is to try to, for me, is to try to actually meet those kids. Um, did you ever go with your father to his doctor's appointment? No. <laughs> Why would you? Right. You know, so so at what age and how um, do you get the 
the parents to bring the kids with so so that I can meet them. Um, one of the things I often tell parents is um, one one way that kids sometimes deal with Huntington's is by um, writing a paper on Huntington's for some class at school or doing some kind of media project in school about Huntington's. Um, I love to work with kids on those projects. Um, and you know what? They always get an A. Why? Because they know more about the topic than their teacher does, and they speak from the heart. Um, and so, so one way sometimes to get a kid, uh, you know, a middle school or high school age kid, uh, sort of understanding a little bit more about HD in a way that may not be quite so threatening as to as to work on a paper for school about it. Um, so I always tell parents, you know, God, when your kid gets to be ninth grade or you know has a health class thing he has to do, bring him, bring him by, and I'm, I'd love to talk to him. Um, uh, so, so one of, the, and then the problem you have is if you never meet the kids before they turn 18, then you never meet them because then they fly away. Um, but you know, you try, you also try to listen for. You know how are things going at home? Um, you know if it's a parent with Huntington's, how are things going with the affected person with Huntington's? But how's it going for the kids too? Um, there are resources available both you know through the Huntington's Disease Society of America has its Youth Alliance um, and the HD Youth Organization, which is particularly near and dear to my heart because it was co-founded by the son of one of my patients. Um, and, you know, so there are resources for kids. There are places for them to get accurate information and to find other people um, who, who have a shared experience. So they don't, they shouldn't have to be alone. Um, so I, I try to direct parents or kids. And I, I think if you're a sibling of somebody with juvenile onset HD, um, um, I don't know. I think that's hard. I, in some ways, it, it it may be almost easier than having a parent with HD. I, one of the things we underestimate: kids are very resilient, um, and depending on the behavior issues or the financial issues or the family structure or whatever. I mean, I you know some some living situations. If you have no money in the and you're living with an affected parent, and the unaffected parent left, and you know, I mean, there's some very complicated and sad situations that people can get into, but there are also some very um, beautiful situations that kids can get into, and they are resilient. They learn things, and they sometimes become better people um, or different people because of their experience with a with a sibling or a parent who had a, a medical illness. Um, it, it makes you a different kind of person when you grew up with sadness. Um, but you can actually grow from it and be a become a marvelous person as a result. Absolutely. Dr. Nance, I, I want to turn over to um, the topic of, of genetic testing. It's it's certainly a mm -hmm. you know an important issue to a, a lot of people. And so the the question of of whether to test or, or not to test for HD would seem to be, you know, the uh, the topic of greatest interest to those that are potentially at risk for Huntington's disease. Can mm -hmm. can you tell us you know why it's not really a question of yes or no to test, but but really something that you should start with you know, discussing and engaging a genetic counselor about first. Yeah, so, um, so I've been involved with predictive testing for Huntington's disease for, uh, gee, since, you know, 1988 or something like that. Um, so I've seen now, uh, actually we're coming on, you know, the second or third generation of people having predictive testing. Um, so number one, misunderstandings about genetics are still rampant um, among patients, families, and I'm sorry, doctors. Um, so, so people will sometimes come in with a misunderstanding or misinformation about 
um, what their risk is or whether they're at risk or why they're at risk or even whether the family disease is Huntington's disease or not. It may be that somebody said it was, but did anybody ever actually get a gene test to prove that that really was? And that's why, um, uh, to me, anybody who's thinking about having um, a, a predictive gene tests really does need to um, work with a genetic counselor. This is what genetic counselors do for a living, is they, they explain genetic concepts, they they run through the family history, they'll look through or have you access the medical records so that we know we're even testing for the correct disease. Um, uh, and I can tell you over 30 years I've seen every variation of, of whoops, <laughs> this is weird, this isn't what we thought. You know, I've seen every variation of that that you could imagine. Um, and so we really want to make sure that, that we're you were even talking about the right disease. You need to know what the possible outcomes of the tests are. It's more or less black and white, but there's a little bit of shades of gray. Um, and you need to understand that before you get the gene test. You need to understand what the test tells you and what it doesn't tell you. So, okay, you got the gene, so when am I going to get it? Well, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it, it, it'll tell you that you have the gene, but it's not going to tell you when the symptoms are going to begin. So in some sense, it replaces one unknown with another. Um, and then why are you getting the test? The question I always ask patients is, why, why are you coming in now? Um, you know, the test has been available since 1993. Um, and, you know, if you're anything over, you know, 18 years old, why didn't you come in last year? Why not next year? Well, what's the rush? Why are you here today? Um, and And sometimes people are moved to get a predictive test because they think they're having symptoms or some kind of symptom, and then they're nervous that it could be a symptom of HD, and they sort of ask for a gene test, but what they really need is a neurologic exam. Um, so if you're having headaches and blurry vision and you're at risk for Huntington's disease, you don't need a gene test. You need a neuro exam and an MRI scan. Um, so, so we often have people meet with a genetic counselor. Um, sometimes uh, they meet on the phone for an hour before they even come in, into the clinic because they're also insurance issues, um, you know, employability issues. The, there are laws, the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, or GINA, that is supposed to protect a person against uh, genetic discrimination. But the laws only go so far. In, um, so to sort through, um, you know, how much does the test cost? Are you going to pay for it? Are you going to submit it to your insurance? And what are the pros and cons of either of those possibilities? And then thinking through, what will this do? Um, wh what will you really do with the results? What are the, there's what you think you might do, and then there's kind of unpredictable or uncontrollable things. You can't control other people's reactions to your results. And you may think that your spouse is enthusiastic about you getting a gene test or that your mother will be thrilled if you test negative. Um, but what if they don't respond the way you think they should? <laughs> and you need to be prepared for that. Um, so, so a lot of thinking through. We actually spend more of our time talking about the, the negatives. Uh, most people who want predictive testing barrel on in and they, they've thought about it and they've lived with this disease and they know they want the testing. Um, and so we we spent a little more time exploring what are the potential downsides of being tested. Uh, it, it's I always liken the gene test more to a um, surgical biopsy than a blood test. We're taking a little snip of you and revealing it in a way that we can't undo any more than we can put your appendix back after we take it out. Um, you know, so so once you have the gene test, you can't unhave it. So let's make sure that this is really going to be a, a useful piece of information. Now, all that may change. Uh, you know, obviously, if there's a a treatment that changes the the nerve cell degeneration. Um, 
we're in this weird time right now where there's starting to be research to develop treatments that we think may turn off the, the abnormal gene. But number one, we don't know if those treatments work. Number two, you can't get into the research study just by having a gene test. You have to, for the, all the current trials that are going on looking at uh, gene-based therapies, you have to actually be symptomatic, diagnosed with Huntington's disease. So a 20-year-old who has no symptoms of anything, who just got a gene test result and knows they have the gene, that alone doesn't qualify them to be in one of these research studies. So we're in this sort of weird time where, again, there's some misunderstanding um, that people want to get the gene test so they can get in the research study. Yeah, you can't get into a clinical trial of a, a gene silencing treatment just because you're gene positive, you actually have to have symptoms at this point. What uh, can can you tell us about you know some of the reactions from people that have gone through the genetic testing process that that really surprised you that you weren't anticipating or that that moved you in a, a way that you you didn't think you would have that kind of reaction? <sighs> um, uh, there are there are lots. They're they're kind of very personal and unique and and hard to sort of hard to describe quickly and also hard to describe without giving out too many sort of personal uh, details. But I, I would just say we've had um, as I said I've had every variation of strange testing situations. So people who want to come in with their brother and sister and all get tested together, which we sort of think is a bad idea because, you know, your brother gets a normal result and you get an abnormal result and kind of you both thought it was going to go the other way around and all of a sudden it's very awkward in the room together. Um, so we sort of discourage that. I've had, um, uh, again, patients, people with Huntington's are quite resilient. We tend to encourage them to bring a uh, companion with them. We don't require it, but we certainly encourage people to bring somebody with. So you've got somebody else in the world that knows what what news you got today. Uh, and had one patient once where the patient kind of halfway expected to get the result they got, and the the companion who was just one of their buddies broke down and you know was bawling. <laughs> And my poor patient was trying to support the support person, um, uh, you know, who who was just devastated by this result. Um, um, you know, we've had people get. Um, actually, recently had somebody who delayed coming in for a long time. The, they had a sibling who had been tested. 20 years ago, and 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 the person finally was brave enough to come in and get the gene test. I had taken taken care of the person's um, mother who had HD, and um, and it was really fun to give um, good news. And the person just about fell off their chair because I think they really had lived a long time just thinking they were going to get it. Um, so it's really fun when you can give happy news. Yeah. Well, I, there's definitely a lot to consider, um, you know, for anyone that's, you know, wants to go down this path or has been thinking about getting tested um, for a while. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's definitely worth the longer discussion. Um, Dr. Nance, I, I just want to kind of wrap it up with a, a couple more questions for you, um, just, you know, for you personally. It, Really interested, uh, and you've had just a, uh, you know, an amazing wealth of experience and, and work in the field. But is there one thing in your life that you would consider or classify as your proudest accomplishment? Uh, yeah. Well, um, you know, I talked about Huntington's disease being a family thing. Um, I mean, without a doubt, the most important thing I did was raise my two boys to be, you know, the marvelous people that I think they are. So that's actually the most important thing I've done. Awesome. And then 
I think I may know how you will answer this, but I'm, I'm going to ask you anyways. <laughs> who, who do you most consider your mentor? Oh, gee. Um, you probably don't know the answer to that. Uh, okay. Um, there's not going to be a single person, but... Um, yeah, but sort of a number of people. I mean, I, th I think we all, um, the field of Huntington's disease would not be anywhere near where it is without Nancy Wexler, um, who was a role model um, for, for kind of for two reasons. One, obviously a leader in the field of Huntington's disease, but also a um, a role model, I think, for a, a woman going into medicine and research at that time, back in the 70s, 80s. Um, so that would be one person. Actually, a role model in terms of neurogenetics is Tom Bird um, out in Seattle, um, who I, we don't talk that often, but I think he knows that he kind of holds a special place in my heart and mind for um, uh, he's also just the kind of person you would want to be as a physician. He's soft-spoken and listens and thinks and is articulate and and actually he just wrote a book that came out last year which everybody should read um, about his um, you know years of experience with um, some of the stories that he has to tell about patients with Huntington's disease. Um, I don't know, and you know, I, um, I, I can, I, I, if I start naming more people, um, I'll forget somebody. But I think those two people probably stand out as uh, unique uh, individuals who I became aware of at a formative time in my life. I appreciate it, and, I, and I'm going to I'm going to claim partial credit because I, I actually was going to I was thinking um, Dr. Wexler uh, just based on mm -hmm. having met her at the HSG annual meeting in Houston, and um, you know when she was there receiving the uh, the Lifetime Achievement Award. So uh, partial mm -hmm. credit. So. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, uh, Dr. Nance, thank you so much for you know taking time out of your schedule. This has been uh, I've just had the absolute pleasure to, to speak with you on all these topics today and uh, you know just really appreciate your time um, with our audience well it's my pleasure too and I, I you know we should all move forward proudly with our heads up Huntington's a bad disease but the the more we talk about it and the more we um, you know don't hide our heads in the sand or feel like there's a stigma um, that let's let's just move forward and get better solutions Absolutely. So. Great advice and, and words to live by. All right, Dr. Nance, thank, thank you very much. Great. Thanks, Kevin. Well, I absolutely enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Nance. It, you know, we chatted for almost an hour. I felt like we could have easily gone on to a second hour, and I promise we'll have her on again to pick up the conversation hear about more stories and experiences that she's had with patients and her clinic. Just a delightful person to talk to. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode and stay tuned and uh, look for another episode of the HD Insights podcast coming in a few weeks. We hope you enjoyed this edition of the HD Insights Podcast. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to make sure you automatically get the latest episodes to your device. Please rate and review this podcast with your feedback so we can continue providing the best possible content. If you are interested in providing financial support for the work needed to produce this content, you can do so by becoming an ongoing sponsor or through a tax-deductible donation. To do so, please email us at info at hsglimited.org. That's I-N-F-O at hsglimited.org. Or by calling our toll-free number at 1-800-487-7671. Thank you for joining us on the HD Insights Podcast from the Huntington Study Group.